0: Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Today, however, we are going to, we've been looking at one verse in the Bible, uh, John 3, 16, one of the more well-known Verses in the Bible, and we've been going through it kind of word by word, or two words by two words. So, for God so loved the world the last three weeks, and this one is, he gave. Yes, so we're going to look at um, he gave and the significance of that. Go ahead and put John 3.16 up. This is the way that God loved the world. He gave his one and only son. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So this this series is going to take us through the end of June. Um, Today, we're just going to look at he gave. And to kind of get a glimpse for why it is that he gave this specific gift and why it is that he gave kind of carries a lot of significance in the scriptures, we need to go back to the book of Genesis. So look at me, 20 minutes of painful background 10 minutes of a silly illustration, and then one minute of relevance. It's going to be fantastic. All right? So let's go to Genesis chapter 11. We just have um, read about the Tower of Babel, kind of the culmination of the fall of humanity that started in Genesis 3. Out of that story comes a genealogy, and we meet a guy named Abram. And we don't know anything about Abram, we just know that he's dropped in the middle of this genealogy. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. I'm going to call her Sarah, that's what she gets renamed to later. And Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Now, in the Bible, that sentence, particularly in the ancient Near Eastern culture, to be childless meant there was some sh- sort of shame or stigma attached to you. Sarah was unable to conceive, so there was the, like it was thought that, that there had been sin in Sarah's life or in the couple's life, but the whole goal of the family unit in those days was to produce offspring. So the fact that they couldn't, that not only they were too old, and they didn't have kids, but they couldn't have kids, there's a whole social stigma attached to that. Um, during the days in which this was written that we can barely sort of comprehend. So the only thing we know about Abram is that he's married and they don't have children, right? That's all we know. Chapter 12 opens with God saying to this man, um, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And then... God makes this beautiful promise, and we have no idea why. Literally, we just met him in the genealogy. We know they're childless and barren, and this is the promise. Abram, Sarah, I will make you into a great nation, which means you will have descendants, lots and lots of descendants. And I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth, will be blessed through you. Now, the rest of the Bible is the outworking of that promise to Abram. And in that promise, three things are either said or implied that are, get explicitly spelled out later in the story. First, the promise to Abram included descendants, that they would have natural children. The second promise was land. That's implied here, but spelled out specifically later. And the third promise is that there would be blessing, not only from God to them, but through them to the rest of the world. So, children, land, blessing. That's the promise that God had given them. And, and thus far, Abram hasn't done anything to deserve it except leave his father's household and go. Are you with me so far? Now, the tension between chapter 11 where Abram and Sarah are childless and barren, and the promise in chapter 12, where they are promised to have a son, a child, that tension drives the whole story forward for 12 more chapters. Because does God keep that promise immediately to them? Not even remotely. So there's this cliche that goes around like God's timing is perfect. And and I'm sure it is, but it never feels that way. Right Because literally Abram and Sarah are so desperate they actually do all of these like creative problem solving to try to to help God keep this promise, and in chapter fifteen, all right, Abram has just defeated four kings in chapter fourteen, and there 's a whole share of bounty that is rightfully his, but he refuses because he doesn't want anyone else to say that abram made himself rich he only wants god to make him rich and and to show god's blessing off in his life so immediately after this god shows up to abram and says don't be afraid abram i am your reward you said no to all of that plunder and in in return i'm your reward and i'm your shield abram (laughs) This is a a very beautiful trait that is highly prized in the scriptures, it's called chutzpah, and it means shameless boldness. So Abram says, I don't care that you are my reward. What can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is not my son, but Eliezer of Damascus, not a natural born heir. I mean, think about that. God says, I'm your reward. Nope, I'm not interested in that. You said I was going to have kids, and I still don't have kids. Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. God doesn't zap him, but instead says, this man, sweet Eliezer of Damascus, will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And then God took him outside and said, look up at the stars, count them if you can, So, however many of the stars are, that's how many offspring you'll have. And Abram believed God. And then there's this great line that gets picked up in the New Testament all over the place. And God credited it to Abram righteousness. Because Abram believed that God would keep his word. And there's, man, that's pregnant. We could have loads of conversation about that. But... 1 through 6 of chapter 15 in Genesis deals with the promise of children. The other promise that Abram has not yet received is the promise of land. So God comes to Abram again. I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Abram. Does Abram say thank you? Nope. Abram says, Sovereign Lord, how can I know? Since you haven't fulfilled the kid promise— how do I know you'll fulfill this one? And instead of zapping Abram, God says, bring me a heifer. And I think all good people know that a heifer is a female cow who has not yet given birth. God says, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Now, we're going to pause here just for a second, because what does this mean? The question Abram asked was, how will I know that I will get this land? God's answer is, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, pigeon, and a dove. Now, we know that, th- that what God's referring to here from other places and in, th- in the context we'll soon look at, we know that God is inaugurating something called a blood covenant. We introduced this concept last week or the week before I don't remember. And I know you all remember it. And happy Mother's Day. Let's talk about the blood covenant for a second. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. No better way to celebrate moms than talking about how in a blood covenant, you would take animals, chop them in half long way and fold them so that the blood from each half would pool in the middle and create kind of like a river of blood. Happy Mother's Day. And in the the ancient Near East, hold that picture right there for a second, if you would, Jacob. In the ancient Near East, you didn't have notary publics and lawyers. So there were various ways that you would make agreements. This was the most serious. This was called the blood covenant because there would be two parties involved, a greater party and a lesser party. The greater party who had more power or wealth or whatever would, would carve out the stipulations for each party. And once the stipulations were agreed upon, the greater party would walk through that blood first. Next slide. And that blood would get on the hem of the robe of the one walking through it. And as you were walking through it, you would say, may God do to me what we have done to the animals if I do not fulfill my part of the covenant. Okay? So it's kind of a big deal when you make a blood covenant. Then the lesser party of the covenant would walk through the second time. And would say again, May God do to me what we've done to the animals if I do not fulfill my part of the covenant. Are you with me so far? I know. Weird, Mother's Day, got it. God uses this imagery in Jeremiah. So I just want to I want you I want you to see that it's like this is what it is. In Jeremiah 34, God says to Israel, those who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walk between its pieces. The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests, and all the people who walk between the pieces of the calf, I will deliver into the hands of their enemies who want to kill them." All right? So this is imagery that was common and not special to Judaism or to, you know, to Abram and the, the, just the people of Yahweh in his day, this was, this was a common way of making covenants. In fact, the word covenant just means to cut. And the cut is in reference to the blood covenant, the cutting of the animals. Are you with me? Yes. Let's go to lunch. Now, what happens next Uh, pick up, we pick up the story in Genesis 15. Abram knew, the minute God said, bring me a heifer, Abram knew what God was asking. So he brought all of these to God, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. So Abram, the, Abram says, how will I know that you will give me this land? God says, bring me a heifer. Abram knows that command is the inauguration of a blood covenant. So Abram cuts the animals, fold, you know, folds them out, and, and the expectation is that God and he will walk through the pieces. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. Now, The word sleep here means a visionary sleep. He fell into a trance. He's having a vision, okay? And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Now, this is not literal darkness. Literal darkness we'll read about in a second. But thick and dreadful darkness is a Hebrew way of saying he was scared to death. He was terrified. And we can understand that, right? I mean, you're making a blood covenant with Yahweh. Now, in making a blood covenant, what did Yahweh promise Abraham? Three things, remember? Children, land, blessing. Thank you. (laughs) Boom. That was Yahweh's part of the covenant. Now, what was Abram's responsibility? Well, there are different pieces throughout the story. We get, we get circumcision we get faithfulness, and then in Genesis 17, we get blamelessness. Notice this, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully, and be what? And then I will make my covenant with you. Now scholars, some scholars disagree and say, hey, there are two covenants here. I think it's one covenant, and that Abram knew these provisions, but that they were made explicit as we went forward. So circumcision, Abram's faithfulness, And then blamelessness, which is another word for blameless. Perfect. Thank you. I'll answer my own question. Perfect. So why was Abram terrified? Well, because God was going to walk through and promise Abram land, children, blessing. Abram was going to walk through and promise God faithfulness, circumcision, and blamelessness. While Abram said the words, if me or my descendants don't abide by the terms of this agreement, you may God do this to us. So we think that thick and dreadful darkness was because he realized if he so much as put his pinky toe in that blood, he and his descendants were on the hook. Now. What, Abra- what happens next is that Abraham gets a, has a vision. He's in this visionary sleep. Go ahead and put that up, Jacob. God said to him, Know for certain. So remember the question. How will I know that I'll get this land? God says, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in Egypt, a country that is not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with a great many possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace. In other words, you will die and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here to this land. For the sin of the people living here has not yet reached its full measure. Now, the pieces are laid out. The terms are agreed upon. Abram is terrified and yet in a visionary sleep. This, then, is what he sees. He hears God's promise about the land But then he sees when the sun had set and darkness, physical darkness, had fallen. A smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now, let's talk about smoking fire pots because we're not huge fans or at least understand what this is referring to. Uh, In that day, when you had a big fire going, you would take some of the embers of that fire and you would put it in a clay pot And you would carry the clay pot as you traveled so that when you stopped for the night you would gather wood and use those embers to start a new fire okay so that sucker would be smoking all day and a smoking fire pot abram sees a smoking fire pot walk through first so we know the greater party walks through first who's the smoking fire pot represent god and we see this all throughout the old testament right smoke a pillar of smoke, or a cloud of smoke, we see this all over the place. We see it in the wilderness when God's leading them. We see it at the top of Mount Sinai, when God gives the law to them. We see that the cloud of smoke fills the temple and the tabernacle when God's presence indwells it. So it totally makes sense that a smoking fire pot would represent God. Notice we read nothing about Abram walking through. Instead, we get a second image representing Abram but not it's a flaming torch now in the Bible torches or fire never ever stand for human beings they always stand for God's presence so I mean and we see that again how did God lead the people in the wilderness smoke and fire how did he meet with them at Mount Sinai smoke and fire how did he pour out his Holy Spirit on the early church through tongues of fire right? God is a consuming fire. So what should have happened is that God, smoking fire pot, would walk through metaphorically, and then Abram, as the lesser party, would have walked through, saying the words, if I do not fulfill my part of the bargain, you may do to me what we've done to the animals. But instead, what Abram sees in this vision is a smoking fire pot representing God, and then a torch representing God. In other words, God walked through twice. He said to Abram, as the greater party, you may do this to me, Abram, if I do not fulfill my part of the covenant, as if, but you get the point. But then God went through again, saying, if Abram and your descendants are not blameless or circumcised or faith, faithful, you may do to me what we've done to the animals. And there are some scholars that think it was that moment that Jesus of Nazareth was sentenced to die. Because what then happens is everything happens exactly the way God predicted. Abram has a son, Isaac. Isaac has two sons. But we'll focus on Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons plus. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. They grow so numerous. In Egypt, they threaten the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh enslaves them. And so God delivers them out of slavery. The slavery, there's no B in slavery. He delivers them from slavery and leads them in the wilderness as smoke and fire. And he takes them to a mountain where he meets with them in smoke and fire and tells them how to be his people. And one of the things they were to do when they arrived someday in the land he would give them, they were to build a temple to him. And every day at nine in the morning and three in the afternoon, they were to go to the place where his name dwelt, and they were and the place where rams and heifers and goats And doves and pigeons were offered. And every day, exactly at nine and three, they were to offer the blood of animals and sprinkle it on the altar. And they were to do this as a perpetual agreement with their God. And so literally, for generation after generation, once they got in the land, once they built the temple, at nine o'clock, a shofar would be blown. A priest would come, slaughter an animal, sprinkle the blood on the altar. At three o'clock, same thing would happen. Nine and three every day for generation after generation after generation until one Friday, one specific Friday, thousands of years later. And this Friday was, was unique because it was Passover Friday. And that day, there had been three criminals sentenced to be crucified outside the city gates. And so at exactly nine o'clock, Three crosses were put up. And the Romans were very, very good at torturing people. So it was a bit of a shock when exactly at three o'clock, the guy on the cross in the middle shouted, it is finished, and then died. And the phrase, it is finished, is an interesting phrase because it's, it, it means completed or concluded But it was also used in the fulfillment of contracts. It was a way of saying paid in full. And so what was finished when Jesus said, it is finished? What was the it? Was it his suffering? Could have been. And yes, that was finished. The temple, as the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, that was finished. But I have a tendency to think that what Jesus is referring to there, the "it." And the, it is finished was the promise that God made to Abram that if his descendants would not be blameless, then God would himself pay the price in blood. That is why if you're new to the Bible, or even if you're not new, why the Bible makes such a big deal about blood, it's like, what does God just hate animals? No, like what's up with all the blood? In fact, in Exodus, right after God had given the Ten Commandments and the beginnings of the law, Moses went and told all the people the Lord's words and law. So God had been meeting with Moses on the top of a mountain. He comes down and he has, you know, has verbally said to Israel, hey, this is what God wants from us, his redeemed people. And then the people respond with a covenant oath. Everything the Lord has said we will do. Now, do they keep that promise? No. I mean, within five minutes, they're creating golden calves. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said, and he brings the people together together again. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent a young Israelite man. Then he sent young Israelite men, thank you, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood of those sacrifices and put it in bowls. And the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant that he'd just written. And read it again to the people and asked them, "We Will you do everything written in here? And they respond with a covenant formula. We will obey the Lord and do everything he has said. And then notice, after that, Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people. Now, so he has all of these sacrifices. He takes the blood, half of it he sprinkles on the altar, symbolizing God walking through his part of the blood covenant. And then he takes the other half and sprinkles it on the people, representing their promise to fulfill the terms of the covenant. And then notice what they call this blood. This is the blood of the what? Of the covenant. Now this phrase, blood of the covenant, comes back so many times. And you'll remember it from Matthew, where Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant. What's he referring to there? Why did his blood matter? That's all hearkening back to the blood covenant. Or in Mark, This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Or in Luke, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Why? Because it's all referencing the blood of that original covenant in Genesis 15, where God walked through twice. Are you with me? Now, the fascinating thing that Hebrews tells us, the book of Hebrews, is that the blood wasn't something God needed, but it was something the Israelites needed. Because the reason they would do the blood thing is because remember the question it was answering, how will I know that I I will get this land? And God does the blood covenant. And so whenever Israelites would sprinkle the blood on the altar, they were not asking for God's forgiveness. They were reminding God to keep his promise. God, remember what you promised. When we take communion, the representation of the blood of the covenant, we're not saying, God, forgive us. We're saying, God, remember your promise. Do you see the difference? 10 minute silly illustration incoming. And I don't mean to be controversial. We're never controversial in here. So this is a first. I want you to know that I hate coffee and coffee drinkers. I'm a very lonely man. But um, I don't like coffee, and people are puzzled. I know. People are puzzled by this. I don't know how you all liked it. I've tried to like it. And unless you dump all sorts of horrible chemicals and sugar in it, I mean, then it's no longer coffee, it's something else. So when the Starbucks phenomenon invaded our culture, I felt very lonely because no one wants to go into Starbucks and order a water. Everyone had their sleeves, their cups, their very cool orders. I had nothing until, for, and this was years. I felt lonely and excluded. And then a friend of mine said, Have you ever had chai tea? And I said, Oh, I, I have not. Is it good? And he, He said your breath will be sweet unlike the coffee drinkers and i said oh perfect so i i I tasted a chai tea and it was magnificent chai tea latte baby is that what it is (sighs) behold the woman of the lord now in my younger days i was known to forget my wallet Maybe purposely, maybe not. Most of the times not. But when I discovered Starbucks had something I could eat, I kind of took advantage of it for a while. Like, oh yeah, I'm a cool person too. And you know, they have oatmeal and like that was my breakfast. So I'm gonna tell you two stories. Neither of these stories is factually true other than certain elements that are true of me, but the stories are not true. Years ago, there was a, uh, I was at a different college retreat and there was a man who stood up and he said, hey, let me ask you a question. When you confess your sins to God, do you appeal to God's mercy when you ask him for forgiveness? And we're like, yes, yes, of course. He said, how many of you, next question, when you confess your sin before God, appeal to his justice? And we went, not a hand moved. So I'm adapting the story he told to make his point, but I'm adapting it using Starbucks and chai tea. So, scenario number one. Suppose I frequent a Starbucks every day, and I have a barista there who works every day. His name is Nick. Again, hypothetical. Nick would be a great barista, however. Nick and I are friends because I get the same thing every day. As soon as he hears my voice, he knows what's coming. I never deviate. But every now and again, I forget my wallet. So let's say on one particular day, I show up and I'm like, hey, Nick, I'd love a chai tea, pull around and some oatmeal, pull around. And you know, have you ever done the pocket thing? I know men, women, you do the purse thing, but I would do the pocket thing. And there's no wallet. And so when I get to Nick, I look at him and say, Nick, I'm so very sorry. I can't pay for this. Is there any way I could get it and pay for two tomorrow? And because Nick's great, Nick would say, the first time, he'd probably say, sure. Yeah. Just make sure you bring your wallet tomorrow. Okay. Next day, tomorrow, I show up, order another chai tea, fully intending on paying the two that I owe. Nick, I'm already at the window. Bro, I'm sorry I ordered it. I don't have my wallet. Is there any way you could float me again? And Nick, because he's great, he's like, yeah, please don't make a habit of this, but okay. Third day, I show up, order. (sighs) Bro, I'm so sorry. I don't have it. Is there any way I could still get the chai and the oatmeal today? Now, Nick's a great guy, but at some point, he's going to say, no, I'm not losing my job because you can't remember your wallet. Would you agree? At some point, his mercy runs out. Second story, second scenario, my wife, very smart woman, knows that I go to Starbucks and knows that I forget my wallet and knows Nick. She buys me a gift card, a Starbucks gift card with $100 on it. But she doesn't give it to me. She gives it to who? Yeah. To Nick. And she says, Nick, whenever that dimwit forgets his wallet, please charge the gift card. And anytime the gift card Runs down to ten dollars. Call me and I'll put more on it. Now, unbeknownst to me, I don't know she's done this, so I show up and I'm like, "Hey, could I have a Starbucks or could I have a a chai tea and a oatmeal?" Nick, dude, I know I'm such an idiot. I forgot my wallet. What's Nick gonna say? No problem. You wanna you want a donut with that or something? And I'd be like. Yes, this is amazing, right? And why would Nick not charge me? Because the, the food had already been paid for, correct? So in the first scenario, I'm paying or I'm appealing, excuse me, to Nick's sense of mercy. I have a debt, can't pay. I hope you're in a good mood, please can I still get what I'm asking for? And at some point, his mercy ran out. In the second scenario, I'm appealing, I didn't even know I was, to Nick's sense of justice because it would be unjust of him to charge me for the food when that food had already been paid for. Correct? So the point speaker was making years ago was simply this, First John 1 John nine. when we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? To forgive us. Because what we're saying when we confess our sins isn't, God, I've done this for the 401st time, I hope your mercy is new every day, which it says it is, but in this case, we're not appealing to his mercy. What are we appealing to? His justice. Why? Because he walked through twice. Should Abram or any of his descendants not be blameless, God promised to pay for that in blood. And so when we take communion, we're not begging God to forgive us. We're saying, God, remember your promise. For years, I was told that the primary identity I have before God is sinner. And so I always have to start by confessing all of the ways I fall short. In the New Testament, however, Paul never identifies his churches as sinners, even though they are massively sinning. He calls them saints. He calls them brothers and sisters. He calls them the household of God, the temple of the Spirit. Why? In fact, he was so bold about naming these Christians and their new identity. Some of the Christians were like, you mean why can't we just keep sinning then? Like that's how gracious Paul's words were, that that was the natural question that was raised. And so at the heart of the universe is a God who so loved the world that he gave what he demanded. And that is why this is gospel and not moralism. That is why this is gospel and not mere ritualistic religion. This is why this is liberation out of slavery. Any questions? (laughs) And again, we have a text line and, oh yes, right here. Hold on, wait, wait. We have an online audience. You guys are amazing. Were the animal sacrifices something that happened outside of the Israelites is my first part of the question. And number two is, was there significance because the animals were something that provided food for them, and by giving up that, they have to make their own sacrifice? Right. Great. Both of those questions are really, really good. Remind me of the first one, just because I got going on the sacrifice. Yeah. Did the um, sacri- animal sacrifices for covenants happen outside of the Israelites? Yes. Absolutely, that was not unique to Israel. So, I think God loves the animal kingdom, and we see hints of this all over the place. So I don't think God was saying, hey, it's my ideal will that you guys all kill animals. In fact, the first time animals are sacrificed are when Adam and Eve sin, and then God covers their nakedness. Um, Give me the second part of your question, I'm so sorry. No, it's just, do you think that there's significance also of the animal sacrifice. Yes, the is, food part, yes. Food because it, it's providing them a way of living, essentially. Yes, and, and in fact, when Israelite was more developed as a nation, that was all that the priests and the Levites would eat, were the sacrificed portions of food to, to Yahweh. So yes, I think that's absolutely right. Great questions. And well done. Anything else you want to talk about? There's one online. Yeah. Um, if it is finished is the end of the covenant with Abraham, what is the new covenant that took its place? Oh, okay. It is finished is not the end of the old covenant with Abraham because the, the rest of the Bible is the fulfillment. Paul even references the, the Genesis 12 in Galatians where he talks about how the seed that was promised Abraham was the Messiah. So I don't think what was finished there was the old covenant. I think what was finished there was the trappings of the old covenant and that, that the need for temple, physical sacrifice, and priesthood was all now wrapped up in Jesus as the new temple, as our high priest, and as the ultimate sacrifice. So that what was local to a country became universalized now through history in a people who didn't need to be any place where sacrifices would be offered. Great question. I know. We're almost done. I know it's blood covenant. I know. It's yucky. Happy Mother's Day. Anything else? You don't? Yes, sir. Hi. Coming to you. And remember, the answers aren't great. The questions matter. That's why we do this. Yeah, we hold Um, it. We hold the mic. Sorry. So I loved the the imagery and the explanation. Like it really brought this alive. You know, I'm trying to square it with hearing about there being an old and a new covenant. Yes. It sounds like there's only one. Bingo! (laughs) Yes. So why do we talk about the old and the new? Oh, fantastic. So in Jeremiah, okay, that's a very, very good question. Um, We read old and new as, and the Hebrew says the Old Covenant is obsolete. So you're absolutely right. Um, but we read old and new, I think, differently than... Those aren't words they would have used. In Jeremiah, well, okay. Oh, so many ways to go through this. And that's what a brilliant question. And the accent makes it that much more brilliant. So, massive, massive affirmations. So... So God has always been looking for cooperative human participants to demonstrate His sovereignty and to participate in the governance of creation. Right? That's Genesis one and two. The minute the human beings are filled with violence, God uncreates and selects a family and pulls them through, and then gives them similar the, the, a similar commission than what He gave, you know, the Adam and Eve pair. Then what God does is he invites this new people to, into the same job description that Adam and Eve had, to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, to steward the work of God in the world, to take creation somewhere and so on. Israel then becomes part of the problem. Instead of stewarding God's holiness, they become just like all the other nations. They're sent into exile, all of those sorts of things. And then we get... Jeremiah saying there's going to be a new covenant, but notice the new covenant is not in terms of difference in what everyone's agreeing to. The new covenant is a one that's written on the heart instead of one that's written on tablets of stone. So the difference between old and new wasn't the agreements. The difference between old and new was flesh versus stone, does that make sense? Now, again, you don't have to buy it. He, the book of Hebrews is a meditation on all of this. So new and old, to me, in my understanding, isn't that God changed the way God works, where he said, oh, I tried, I tried faith, I tried rescuing people, I tried partnership with people, and that messed up, so I have to try something else. It was rather, I'm now going to give my son so that, My spirit can dwell in their hearts so that the law can be written in their hearts and everything be universalized into the world instead of just one person, Jesus, living in one location, Israel, with a temple, priesthood, and sacrificial system. So that's how I understand the difference between old and new rather than, because I would argue that the old covenant was a covenant of grace just as much as the new covenant because the law was given to Israel only after they were rescued. And and, and God even says to them like, it wasn't because you were so numerous or awesome that I rescued you, I just set my heart on you. That's total grace. So is there a law for the Christian? Yeah. Love your neighbor as yourself, love God with everything. Yes, the law of love. But that law is only given to people already redeemed. So I see the grace and faith Mix in the Old Testament, just like the grace and faith mix is in the New. But how the grace and faith thing w- was enfleshed was radically different, and I think that's the, the difference between the Old and New. Again, you don't have to buy it. There's so many good books out there on it, and I can recommend some if you'd like. Okay. Oh what? Yeah, yeah. Books would be great? I want to make you email me. Because there's one I don't remember. There's one that's just came out. And I think it's called Rethinking the Atonement by Jonathan Moffat. But I don't know. I need to make sure that's the right title. Because usually when we hear atonement, we think God's mad and he's looking to hit somebody. And so Jesus steps forward and says, hit me, not them. That's not what substitutionary atonement is. Substitutionary atonement is where God redeems people from evil, not from himself. God doesn't ever rescue people from himself. God redeems people by allowing this present age to do its worst on him. And in some mystical way, we get united into that through the spirit so that we live now, still in the world of flesh and blood and powers and principalities, but no longer defined by them and enslaved by them the way that we used to be. So anyway, m- these are massive theological thoughts, loads of disagreement. And again, you don't have to take my word for any of this. Please go study it. All right. We're done. That's a doozy. I have a headache. I'm going to go take a nap. It's Mother's Day. Yeah. Yeah. My wife and i'll nap together it'll be great <laughs> here's what we want to do though my friends as the band comes on up we wanted to celebrate communion together it just would make sense that of all the images or things that we could do this is what we would do today do 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 all of you have the little containers if you don't would you raise your hand Zach, Zach was in the green room eating with me, so that's why he doesn't have a container. These ladies, so, some, someone neglected these ladies back here. Yes, anyone else? Oh, over here on the sides. Nice, look at us. Yeah, and just, you know, as a reminder, when you ate communion in the first century, you did not get this. Okay, it was like a full meal. All right, anything? Got, everyone got it? All right, so have I got great news for you. What we're doing today is that we're reminding God of his promise. God's mercy is not going to run out the 401st time that you do the same sin or the 402nd time. Why? Because we're not appealing to his mercy. We're appealing to his justice. That's why Paul will use the image of our hearts are actually sprinkled clean. Because it's not that the blood is efficacious, but it's a reminder of what was efficacious. And so, my friends, as people who sin but no longer are identified as sinners, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus of Nazareth, took Passover bread and he blessed it. And that said something totally surprising. He said, this is my body given to you and broken for you. And when you eat this, do it in remembrance of me. Then after supper, he took the fourth cup of wine, which is massively significant. He drank it, he blessed it, and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant written now on your hearts. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. And so, Lord, we simply ask for the grace to believe the good news is actually this good. Because we don't. We don't. I don't really believe that it's this good. So as you shape us and form us through the bread, the cup, the words that we sing and pray, would the work of your spirit be such that we begin to crack open to the possibility that we don't have to stand before you condemned. For there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Amen.